I didn't need a nanny. I couldn't afford a nanny. I just needed to get him places. And um, standing around with all these moms as a joke, I said, you know, we should all throw money in a hat and buy a van and hire the stay-at-home moms in the neighborhood to drive our kids around. And everybody kind of laughed that off. And my co-founder, Janelle, looked at me and said, oh, my God, how do we do that? This is LA is Good For You, a podcast about founders and funders who are building LA's most interesting companies. We are your hosts, Kevin and Suze. On this week's episode, we'll introduce you to Joanna McFarland, co-founder and CEO of Hopskip Drive, a rideshare service for kids designed by moms. So the interview with Joanna almost made me cry because when I was thinking about Hopskip Drive before, it was, you know, it's a rideshare service for kids. But when Joanna was talking about it, it was more about opportunities that that rideshare service creates, that you can get to your soccer practice, that you can get to your piano lessons, that um, kids from school um, can explore other hobbies or, you know, big brother programs. And, and that was not the way that I was thinking about it. It's hard, especially when you don't have kids, you know. But when you think about life when you were a kid and you wanted to go somewhere and you needed to ask somebody's permission to actually get there. And, you know, some of these people that Joanna was talking about, they don't have adults around them to ask permission to get from here to there. Yeah, I could walk everywhere. So yeah. I was very lucky. <laughs> very lucky. Poland's very different than Los Angeles. I'm just going to go out on a limb. <laughs> it certainly is, especially my hometown. <laughs> And with that, let's pick up the story. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Denver. So that's 352 days of sunshine every year. Yes. But with the difference, uh, the difference between Denver and L.A. is that there's four seasons in Denver. Not just shorts and pants, the yes. two seasons we have here. No, you get a real <laughs> fall, a real spring, and you get snow. Uh, what about your family? Was anybody an entrepreneur? Yes, but not in the way that you think about entrepreneurs. Um, so my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. Both my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and they came to America with, you know, really nothing. My mom uh, was born in a refugee camp in Austria. They came when she was four years old. Um, they worked incredibly hard their whole lives. Uh, my my grandfather was a furniture repairman. My grandmother had been a teacher in Poland went to college here in the U.S. and became the principal of the Jewish Community Preschool. Um, so she was an, an entrepreneur in in just kind of making her way um, and never giving up. And, and education was something that was very, very important to her. Uh, my dad was an oral surgeon and opened his own practice. So, uh, you know, he was a small businessman, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, but I, I never set out to be an entrepreneur. It was very much an accident. So you said that you went to school on East Coast. What did you study? So I studied business. Um, I went to Wharton undergrad um, and went there to do marketing and sort of fell into finance uh, because everyone at Wharton was in finance and did investment banking. And that's what you did when you went to Wharton. Um, and so so that's what I studied in, in college. And then I went to New York and did investment banking for two years. And then um, I wanted to go to London. And so I ended up uh, moving to Dallas, uh, which makes a ton of sense. Um, <laughs> sort of went the other way. No, I went to a private equity firm that was based in Dallas, but had an office in London. And so the deal was, you know, two years in Dallas and a year in London. And I ended up spending three years in Dallas. Um, 
But at, you know, it, it didn't make sense. We were fundraising at the time in London. It didn't make sense to move to London. And, and at that point, I had met my now husband, who's from Dallas. Um, so that, you know, I sort of ended up in Dallas kind of by accident, but really loved it and and loved uh, the work I was doing there. But I didn't love the financial engineering. Like, I, that wasn't what got me out of bed in the morning. Um, but what got me out of bed was working with our companies, helping them with strategy, helping them figure things out. And so really went to business school to move more to the operating side of the world. Um, and so my my who's my boyfriend at the time, he moved out to the Bay Area with me when I went to business school. And when I graduated, you know, I said, it's your turn. Where do you want to go? And um, he's a writer, so he picked L.A. And we came down here after I graduated in 2005, and we've been here ever since. At my 10-year business school reunion, I think there was an award for number of jobs after school. And I think I won the award for having the most jobs post-business school in that 10-year time frame. How many, how many is it? I think I had six. I think I was clearly looking for something, right? Like I clearly was searching, uh, but didn't realize it. Um, no, I was at uh, I was at a company called Oversee at the time, running co- their consumer finance practice. Um, and I was at a birthday party, and all the moms were standing around talking about you know the problem of the the week that moms talk about at birthday parties. And this one was transportation, and everybody had some version of the same story, right? You know, I work on the West Side. How am I going to get back to pick up my kid? Or I've got two kids and one needs to be at dance and one needs to be at soccer at the same time. How do I get them there? Um, For me, I was feeling really guilty because I had just told my then six-year-old, like, you can't do karate because it's on Tuesday at three o'clock and I just, I have no way of getting you there. Um, I didn't need a nanny. He was in school full time. He was in aftercare. I didn't need a nanny. I couldn't afford a nanny. I just needed to get him places. And um, standing around with all these moms as a joke, I said, you know, we should all throw money in a hat and buy a van and hire the stay-at-home moms in the neighborhood to drive our kids around. And everybody kind of laughed that off. And my co-founder, Janelle, looked at me and said, oh, my God, how do we do that? Let's do that. And we started meeting at her house on Sunday mornings. The kids would play in the other room. And we would kind of map this out at her dining room table. And I think it started as intellectual stimulation and kind of a fun thing to think about. But it quickly became consuming and it, it wouldn't leave us alone. And I just I became really obsessed with this idea. It was all I thought about. And I really, you know, got to the point where I couldn't, I had no choice. Like, I couldn't not start this company. We then hooked up with Carolyn, who's our third co-founder, a few months later. So Carolyn um, was introduced to us by uh, Kara Nortman. Um, Kara and I had gone to business school together, and she was advising us and, um, you know, called me up and said, I met this woman, Carolyn. I really think you guys need to meet. You know, she, she's working on a very similar idea. You need a lawyer. She needs a business person. And, uh, and we met and dated for several months um, and, uh, and before agreeing to work together. I mean, I think we – we were talking about this. I think we knew that this was you – know, we had never started a business before, but I think we knew that this was going to be like getting married and, and having a baby. And, and having done that a couple of times, we knew how hard that was. <laughs> um, and we wanted to make sure that the three of us were people we wanted – you know. Carolyn, Janelle, and I wanted to get married and have this baby together and, and were in it um, and shared the same views on parenting and, you know, I, I'm making a bad analogy. But I think, you know, we knew that this was a very long term commitment and not to be entered into lightly. And so we really uh, got to know each other and, and asked the hard questions and had hard conversations up front. 
and learned that we could do that in a way that was very respectful um, and then move on. How did you guys actually figure out what, like, did you read co-founders, what, co-founders dilemma, I think is what? Founders, founders dilemma. dilemma. Uh, was there a book or was there a process or did you just? I think we winged it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think we had lots of talks about what is your vision for this business? Where do you see it going? What do you want from it? What's important to you? Um, we talked a lot about roles. I, I think in our case, it was easy. There were very clear divisions of responsibility. Um, so there wasn't this tension over, well, I want to do that or I want to do that. But, you know, we had to have the conversation, who's going to be the CEO? Who's going to have ultimate um, decision-making authority? Because somebody has to, at the end of the day, be able to say, nope, this is what we're doing. Um, and we all agreed that that was very important, actually. Um, you know, we had conversations around splitting up equity. Mm -hmm. And if you can have that conversation and all feel good about it, like, that's a good sign. You, you can have that conversation respectfully. Um, this is L.A. We had conversations about where to put the business. I live on the east side. Carolyn lives on the west side. We are a downtown company. Um, <laughs> you know, but but those are conversations you need to have before somebody goes out and leases space in Venice. Like, I'm not driving to Venice every day. Like, that's never going to happen. Um, so, you know, we had all of those conversations up front. So once you guys had the conversations and you were all ready to commit, how did you guys actually get started? Do you Did you actually lease a van and... And do the plan from the playground? We did not. No, by that point, we had morphed the business idea. You know, we knew that this was now more of a ride-sharing model and um, and, and a two-sided marketplace. And, and we needed to think about families and we needed to think about care drivers. Um, we built the first version of the technology. Um, you know, I product managed and, and worked with some, some friends of mine who were um, – Moonlighting, you know, nights and weekends to help build the prototype of, of what this would be. Um, and, but, but I think the most important piece of it was not necessarily the technology piece. It was the service. Like, how does the service work? What is, you know, from the very beginning, it was what would it take for us to put our kids in these cars? Like, what do I need to see to feel comfortable putting Jackson or Sam in a hop-skip drive? What do I want the driver to have gone through? Who do I want that care driver to be? Um, what do we want to call her? You know, we call her care driver. Um, what kinds of things do I want to see in the technology? Like, I want to be able to get alerts. I want to be able to track the ride. I want to know that somebody else is tracking that ride because if I'm in a meeting, I'm probably not, going to be watching it super closely, but I want to know that somebody is. Um, you know, all of that, I think we we laid out up front. And that was a lot of us, the three of us just hashing out, like, what would you want to see? What would you want to see? How do we prioritize this? How do we make this work? Um, you know, all of that was was very much up front and hasn't, re I mean, we have added to it, but I think the, the foundation that we laid has pretty much stayed the same. How did you test your intuition once you defined it? We asked a lot of parents. We talked to a ton of moms that we knew. Um, we talked to, uh, you know, the people that we were bringing on board as care drivers. Um, they're all caregivers. You know, from the beginning, they had to have caregiving experience. They had to have five years of caregiving experience. And we asked them, what would you want to see? You know, um, and, and we just, it was, it was all first person interviewing and focus grouping and so when did you decide that you were ready to go out and raise? 
you know, I mentioned before, like, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was scary. It took me a long time to actually, like, really make the decision to leap. Um, you know, I had the, you know, my husband is a writer. And so I always joke that he was the high beta income in the in the, the marriage. And, um, you know, and, and I was the steady income. I paid the mortgage. I paid preschool tuition. And that was, you know, that was my big corporate job. Um, it was very scary to be like, just kidding. I'm quitting that. Um, and it took a really long time to get comfortable with that. So, um, and I think at, at some point I just kind of came to the conclusion that, you know what, I'm I'm employable. <laughs> and if this thing just completely crashes and, you know, I, I'm not going to ever put my family out on the street. <laughs> I can go find a job. Um, you know, so we, we, you know, maybe we'll add a little bit more credit card debt than we have. You know, we don't have any today. Maybe we'll have some credit card debt. We have a home equity line of credit. Like, we're going to be fine. Um, but I had this crazy illusion in my head that we would raise money and then I would quit my job. And I went on it. We went on a couple of meetings and it was very clear very quickly that if I wasn't willing to bet on myself, nobody was going to bet on us. And so I quit my job. I, I took that leap. Um, and we just we started and, and nobody wanted to give us money. Everybody thought this was a crazy idea. We were first time founders. Um and so we just we raised a very small friends and family round and just kept a note open and we knew it wasn't nearly enough but we just got we, we knew it wasn't enough but we knew that we had to show that people would actually do this and and trust us and so we needed to just get started and that's what we did so when you were trying to raise money was it because you were a first time founder that people didn't want to give you any or do you think they just didn't believe in the model I think it was a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we had both working against us. Was it um, when you guys were raising money, was it before or after, you know, Uber's expansion and a massive success? Because I would think that like, if you say it's Uber for kids, yeah. people are just going to be well, just giving me more money. <laughs> you, one would think. Uh, <laughs> no, Uber, was t- Uber and Lyft were both taking off at that time. I think the big question was, why can't they just do this? Right. So what makes the what makes this different um, and your first time founders and you're in L.A.? I mean, you know, we, we got dinged kind of for everything and your female founders. I mean, we got, you know, every ding. Um, and so we had to do it. We had to show that people would do it, show why it was different, show, you know, why we thought Uber and Lyft wouldn't go into that space. Um and then, you know, as we got going and as we got traction, we started to to build some excitement and and raised a, a seed round and and you know, then we were off to the races. How much did you raise in your seed round? Uh, about three million. And who were those investors who you know, took the leap of faith, I guess? Yeah. So uh, upfront ventures, Greg Bettinelli, uh, Rick Heitzman at First Mark Capital. Um, they'd both been following it for a really long time, and you know, I think. Similar to what I was saying about our co-founders and really building that relationship, I built a relationship with both of them over a number of months. You know, they were following the business, getting to know me. I was getting to know them. Um, And so, uh, which I really appreciate um, because they've been fantastic partners and supporters of the business. So talk us through what happened since you raised that seed round. Um, you guys got a lease in downtown, uh, started hiring people, um, started growing business. Give us a little bit of history. Yeah, I, we had hired. A, we were working out of a, a co-working space in downtown near Pershing Square. It was pretty 
grimy. Um, we'd hired a couple of people. I mean, we were a very small team, um, but we just kept kind of going on that convertible note, and then and then we raised the the round, um, and we moved to a much nicer space and had our own office for the first time, and and really just kept growing and and kept adding people. We were expanding. We we expanded across LA neighborhood by neighborhood or region by region. And so we really kept, you know, we used that to really expand across LA, build out the the product. I mean, it was really a, a prototype um, and and pretty bad user experience, uh, which I can admit now. Um, <laughs> and and so we we put some money into that. We um, and and we just kept growing, and um, and then we raised our Series A in December, January of that year. Um, and use that to expand to Orange County. We expanded to the Bay Area um, and just kept growing the business. So what were those you know, first successes that you saw after you raised the seed round when you were growing the business? Yeah, we kept seeing month over month growth, exceeding even our expectations. Um, we, we were starting to then get enough data around consumer, you know, family retention, care driver retention, understanding what our cohorts look like. Um, and um, I think as we continued to grow, we also saw that, um, and, you know, we expanded, I mean, so now we're, we're really across LA County, and then we had expanded into Orange County, and people don't realize how big that actually is. Um, I, I remember at one point I put up a map of like six U.S. cities can fit into the the L.A. metro area. Um, so you see just how big that is and, and how many learnings there are. I mean, L.A. is so geographically diverse, demographically diverse, um, financially diverse. And so you learn so much by operating here. Um, that I think really is applicable to so many other markets. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we saw was that the solution that we were building for families was also a great solution for schools, for nonprofits, for groups that needed to get kids around um, and started to get inbound from organizations that had transportation needs for kids and needed some solutions. Um, and, you know, because if you think about it, the the K through 12 transportation industry hasn't really evolved all that much. And there hasn't been a ton of innovation in the last 70 years. Um, and, you know, if you need to get 60 kids from point A to point B, you need a school bus. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to be your best bet. Most times school buses are very underutilized. And so if you've got 10 kids on a bus, that's an incredibly expensive and inefficient way to get kids around. And we might be a much better option for a school. Um, and so started really offering solutions and partnering with schools, with school districts. Um, and that has been the fastest growth engine of the business and, and what is propelling not just the tremendous growth we're seeing in the markets that we're in, but is also leading us into new markets in a way that's really exciting. So you've been expanding markets in, in the rideshare space. And you've been doing it in a market where you're helping kids move around. I would imagine that there's a, you know, somebody at the government would have a lot of questions before they let you start carrying kids around. Have you been handling those conversations? 
Yeah, I think from the beginning, we have taken a very collaborative and partnership-based approach with government and with regulators. Um, you know, we uh, the, P, the Public Utilities Commission is what regulates transportation network companies in California, across the state of California. And, um, you know, when we first went to apply for a permit, you know, we partnered with them. We we acted as a thought leader with them in what should this look like? You know, kids are different and um, kids are a much more vulnerable population. You know, if I'm in a lift and I'm not comfortable for whatever reason, I can get out. I can end the ride. I can get out. I can order a new ride. Like I can manage that myself. If you're an eight-year-old, you're not able to do that. You might not have a phone. You don't know where you are. You know, it, it's just, it's very, very different. Um, and so, you know, we were the first rideshare company to fingerprint all of our drivers. And and we really, we did that not because we were required to by the state, but because we knew it was the right thing to do. And then we turned around and worked with the PUC to, again, be a thought leader and say, if you're primarily driving kids, like this is, this is what you should do. And this is what the regulation should look like. Um, and I think because of that, uh, you know, other cities and states have have reached out and asked us to come because they see what we've done, because they see um, how we are good partners. Um, and and it has led to, um, you know, we actually, you know, the, the county is actually a customer. We partnered uh, at the beginning of this year, we partnered with L.A. County uh, to drive foster youth. There are federal mandates around keeping foster youth at their school of origin. Because if you're if you're a foster kid, you move around a lot. And you might move five or more times. And that might mean going to five different schools because you're constantly moving around. And, you know, every school has different requirements. Credits don't transfer. It can take several weeks just to enroll in a new school. So the graduation rate of foster youth is significantly behind the general population. Um, you know, in the state of Colorado, the foster youth, the foster graduation rate is 23% compared to about 88% for for the general population. And so this is a this is a real problem. And so these federal mandates were set out to try to address this. Well, guess what one of the biggest barriers to making that happen is transportation. How are you going to get those kids there? Um, and these are situations where, again, a bus may not make sense to put one kid on a school bus, right? So um, so we partnered with L.A. County um, and, and have been driving foster youth since January of this year, and it's been a tremendous partnership. You know, we've seen we've, – we've really, cha- you know, seen um, – We've seen a couple kids graduate high school this year that wouldn't have otherwise graduated. I mean, we, we drive kids of all ages, but we, we've definitely we, we've driven a few who are, are some of my favorites, and we have some amazing stories. Um, and I think that's a great example of being good actors and collaborating from the beginning has led to some of those opportunities. Did you ever think that you'd be solving these kind of problems when you started the company? Um, no. <laughs> I know I you know, I, I would be lying if I said four years ago this was where we saw this going. I, I think fundamentally we understood that the problem that we were solving was access to opportunity. That um that this is a problem that is really hard for families to solve. The logistics of getting everybody where they need to be creates barriers to access. And whether that is 
access to the opportunity to attend the right school for you. And that might be the school down the street, but it might also be a magnet school, you know, 30 miles away in the valley. It might be a private school, but but mobility creates a real barrier to that access. Um, or whether it's access for foster youth to just stay at the school that they're at. Um, or, you know, we do a lot of work with, with some nonprofit partners, um, you know, big brothers, big sisters, access to getting to that mentoring program that is available to you, that is a great program, but if you have no way of getting there, it doesn't matter. Uh, we do a lot of work driving kids to internships. Um, and so for, for so I, I don't think we foresaw exactly how that would take shape, but I think, you know, we are not a – we are a transportation services provider, but really I think what we provide is access to opportunity through mobility. You're solving a problem that requires a lot of empathy to do it yes. well. Uh, how have you gone about hiring both your team of people mm -hmm. who are managing, say, growth and product and the rest of it and drivers who are actually moving the kids around? Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to plagiarize Janelle here for a minute. Um, Janelle's our brand vision uh, guru. Uh, I think from the very beginning, we talked about brand and what brand meant to us and what we wanted the Hop, Skip, Drive brand to be. And Janelle would always say brand is not a logo and colors and a slogan. It is who your company is. It is how you act. It is who you hire. It is the decisions that you make every single day and, you know, your brand and your culture are not two different things. Um, and, and I think we've tried to be intentional about that. It can be really hard when you're in the middle of, you know, rapid growth to remember that. Um, but, you know, I think we we set out our our core values pretty early on and, and one of them is feel it and be empathetic and think about um, the family on the other end of that phone call or the driver who is in a carpool line and is, you know, maybe a little stressed trying to pick up the kid uh, or, you know, the engineer sitting next to you who's solving a really hard problem. You know, it, it, we talk about it in all of those contexts. And I think it comes from the fact that we ourselves are parents. I mean, Janelle's son was the very first child in a hop, skip, drive ride. And we were all huddled around the computer together watching her son, you know, tracking that car, watching her son get picked up. But we were also watching Janelle's reaction. And and she had built this thing. This was her, you know, she and she was a nervous mom in that moment. Right. And so but like that was really great for us to have that empathy. And I remember that, you know, funny enough, Jackson wasn't old enough to, to ride in a hop, skip, drive car when we started the company. <laughs> so I created a solution that didn't even work for me. Um, but when he, you know, I, I was nervous when he took that first ride. Um, and so I think creating something that we are the customers of and creating something where we were solving our own pain point that we felt so deeply translated into having that empathy and making sure that everybody that we brought onto the team has that empathy. And I think that's a huge part of our brand and our values. Not everybody that works at Hop, Skip, Drive has kids. Most people don't have kids, but everybody that works there has somebody they love. And so that's what we talk about. You know, would you put somebody you love in this car? Would you, you know, are, is, is the, is that care driver somebody that you would put a loved one with and you want to put them through the process? Is the process something that you would feel comfortable 
you know, for your loved ones? Is the tech that we're building, is the user experience something that you would feel comfortable? So that that kind of mantra um, really goes throughout. And and we have a, a strong no asshole policy. Um, That's my perfect policy. <laughs> uh, you know, excuse my language, but, you know, we want to work with people who we want to be around and who share the same values that we do. We have a very inclusive culture and we strive to have people who have different ways of thinking about things and, and have different backgrounds that they bring to the table. People have, And that doesn't mean, you know, that means people who are different ages. That means introverts and extroverts. And you know, we really try to think of it not just along like your typical diversity lines, um, which I hate uh, when people talk like that, but really inclusive, right? So when you come to Hop, Skip, Drive, you see somebody who, um, you know, or hopefully when you when you come to Hop, Skip, Drive, there are people there who are like you. There are people who are introverts. There are people who are extroverts. There are people of all ages, um, people of all backgrounds. And so hopefully that makes you, you know, you can see yourself as part of the team and feel like you are included, and what does it take to be um, a hop, skip, drive care driver? What yes. does it take to become one? So care drivers go through a 15-point certification process. They have to have five years of caregiving experience. Um, so they are moms, teachers, nannies. They're used to working with kids. They go through fingerprinting um, and a background check. They go through driving record checks um, that are both backwards-looking and forwards-looking. You know, so if, if something happens next week, we find out about it. Uh, we do car inspections. We meet every single care driver in person. So, you know, we do far more than most families do to vet a nanny or a babysitter. So what does success look like to you? Success to me looks like, you know, we're building a nationwide transportation network that matches families and schools with very highly vetted and trusted care drivers um, so that we can provide that access to opportunity. And I want to do that everywhere uh, because this is not just a need here in California and Colorado. This is a need, you know, really all over. Um, and we're seeing that and we're seeing that need and we're seeing, you know, we're getting asked constantly, when are you coming here? When are you coming here? When are you coming here? So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and I think we've done a really good job, you know, certainly over the last year, really building that playbook, having launched in, you know, having gone out of California and launched in Denver, um, we, we, we've built a pretty robust playbook for what that looks like and, and how we go into new markets, maintaining the quality that we've built here. Um, and, and I'm excited. I think you're going to see a lot more expansion from Hop, Skip, Drive in the months and, and year to come. And I'm really excited about that. How do you decide where to go next? Yeah, we look at a number of things. Um, you know, we look at uh, fam, you know, number of families in a market. We look at schools and what school transportation looks like in that market. And that includes school districts. It includes charter schools and private schools. We look at opportunities to partner um, with counties and um, government and, and nonprofits and, and really um, just offer our solution um, in a way that makes sense in that market. We also look at care drivers, right? Do we think that there's a good supply of care drivers in a market who want to drive for Hopsy Drive and who are going to meet our criteria? One of the questions that we'd like to ask people is, um, you know, our goal 
is to inspire more dreamers to become founders. What advice do you have uh, to anybody out there listening um, who wants to become a founder and, and hasn't quite gotten there yet? Yeah, um, I think it's a great question. It, it is a really, really scary leap. It's not as scary as you think it is. Um, and it, it, it took a long time for me to make that switch in my head, but it was. It was just one day I woke up and I was like, I'm not going to bankrupt my family if we do this. And and if we fail at this, it's okay. Um, I had a couple of you know personal events in my life that really kind of made me realize that time is short and just saying, oh, I'm going to do this in five years. I'm going to do this when the kids are older. I'm going to do that, you know, um, those events made me uh, refocus and really think about making sure to not waste time because you don't know how much time you have. And so th- those were kind of very inciting incidences to, to just sort of do it. Um, but just, yeah, take the leap. It's not as scary as it seems. It's terrifying every day, but it's not as scary as it seems. <laughs> I've got one, one last question. It's just why hop, skip, drive? What's in the name? <laughs> the name? <laughs> um, why hop, skip, drive? Uh, we wanted something that was kid-friendly, was playful, um, felt like, um, you know, it was kind of like hop, skip, jump. So it felt like mobility um, honestly, the URL was available and we had searched for name, you know, we had played with naming for weeks and every name we came up with was bad or the URL was taken and we needed a name. And that was sort of the one that just kept sticking around, uh, at the end of all of our brainstorming sessions. It's a great name. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. This was so good. <laughs> and that's our show for this week. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, why not add a review to let us know what you think? You can also find us at laisgoodforyou.com. See you next week.